Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You'll find this in the Pew Bible on page uh, 810. We're turning a corner today in the Sermon on the Mount. About eight weeks or so ago, we started the sermon. We looked at the God-blessed life, the Beatitudes, the blessings Jesus pronounces on his disciples. People who bear the marks of God's grace, who've been graced and saved not by their works, but by their Savior. And it changes them. And they are blessed. True disciples of Jesus, we saw, beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, have begun to become poor in spirit and mourn for their own sins and to be meek and to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to be merciful to others and to be pure in heart and peacemakers, even while they may be called to suffer uh, persecution for Christ and for his righteousness sake. That's what Jesus says in those words. Now he turns and in verses 13 to 16 really puts before us two metaphors, uh, two statements about who his people are. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Today, we're just going to take that first metaphor, salt. What are Christians in this world and how should we relate to the world? That's the subject of this passage. So let me invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's word and its proclamation. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, grant that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. By the work of your spirit, speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What are Christians in this world and... How should we relate to the world? That's what we want to think about here. Jesus knows us really well. He knows his disciples. He knows what he's just said to them about how if you're his disciple, the world may hate you. It may hunt you. It may hurt you. It may revile you with words. They may scorn you, insult you, or slander you. That may be what happens. Uh, In fact, those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, the Bible says, persecuted at at some level, in some way. Thankfully, in America, not every day, by everyone. So we looked at that. Now, Jesus, coming off of that statement, knowing the heart of his disciples, knowing what it is to be human and knowing us intimately well as fallen humans, as he knows us, Because he's God. 
He knows that when we hear that, we might be fearful of the world and then be tempted to do what? Well, one thing we might be tempted to do is to withdraw from the world, right? To hide ourselves from the world. If the world is against us, we might say to ourselves, then I don't want any piece of that. I'm going to duck and hide in the darkness, right? And if I keep away from the world, maybe the world won't notice me. Uh, Or we may just simply, um, out of fear of the world, uh, become indifferent to the world. Sort of write the world off. Well, if that's the way the world's going to treat Christians, then a pox on all your houses, right? And Christians do that. Maybe not with that attitude, but we do withdraw into our own little community. I certainly know the temptation to... I want to own the 40 acres. I want to plant my own crops. I want to hang out with people I like who like me, who are like-minded with me. Uh, I I want to live in a Christian bubble, right, where life is easy and comfortable. Uh, Have my own rules, go my own way according to God's word, and let the world go its way. That's a temptation for people. In the history of the church, monasteries have sometimes been that kind of thing. Uh, Amish communities sometimes... Uh, become that kind of thing. And we have that kind of thing in our own community in Salem Springs. Anytime we're tempted to just isolate ourselves from the world and write the world off, that's a temptation. Now it may be that our temptation is different. There's fear in our hearts of the world, and so what do we do? Instead of uh, hiding from the world or instead of just writing the world off, we, we hate the world. Uh, in our sinful uh, self-justification, we feel good about despising the world and the people of the world, frankly. And so we don't care about the lost. We're uninterested in seeing people brought to the joy of Jesus. How quickly our hearts at times uh, switch from hating sin, which is right in every case, to hating sinners who sin. Which isn't what we're called to. We're called to love sinners as God has loved his enemies. And then there's another tendency, and of course course, that's to compromise, right? To go along and get along. To escape antagonism. To fit in. We morph ourselves out of what God called us to be. So that the world will embrace us, like us, approve of us, accept us, right? I mean, if the world hates Christians for being distinctive and loving Jesus and caring about salvation or the Bible or whatever, then if I can just, you know, change my beliefs a little bit here and a little bit there and make myself a little more acceptable, well, then maybe we can get along with the world, become like the world. So Jesus is waiting for us in all those temptations here. And what does he say? He says, don't do that. And and why? He says, because you are the salt of the earth. And so he says, be salt in the earth. He says, you are salt, be salt. You are different, be different. Be different from the world, but be different from the world for the world. And so he gives his people an identity and an agenda. And the agenda flows out of the identity. So I want you to think about those two big things, our identity, and then the agenda, and there's three parts to that. 
So first, the identity. What does Jesus say his people are? He says you are, verse 13, front end, the salt of the earth, right? Uh, Jesus here uh, is actually speaking highly of his people. When the world thinks you're disposable, that it's worth it to spend time and energy uh, hunting you down, hurting you, reviling, scorning you, making uh, false accusations against you, whatever it is, and the world out there in other places especially, is imprisoning Christians and executing Christians just for believing in Jesus. And when the world wants to spend all its time and energy on that because they think you're worthless, so we can do without you, Jesus says, but I want you to know what I think of you. Without you, the world would cease. You are indispensable to the world. You know that the human body can't live without salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And he tells them that is a fact. This is why we say identity, uh, not agenda. He tells them it's as a fact. He makes a declaration. He doesn't say here, be salt. He says, you are. Just as he'll say, you are light, not be light. The mood here is the indicative, not the imperative. It's a declaration, not a command. Right? And what do we know about salt? Salt is inconspicuous. Salt is something that is best when it doesn't draw attention to itself, right? When you have too much salt in your casserole or on your morning eggs or on your steak and what you're tasting is the salt instead of the dish, it's an unpleasant experience. Salt works best when you don't recognize the salt is there. It's a flavor enhancer, right? We might say this, that Jesus is in part saying... Um, He doesn't want his people to draw attention to themselves. He doesn't want us to draw as much attention to ourselves as possible so that the world will say, look at them and look at them. No, no, no. Salt works quietly, often without being observed. It's inconspicuous. It's also extremely common and ordinary. Salt is, uh, it isn't one of those highfalutin uh, Spices that you got to pay 10 bucks for on the uh, aisle shelf at the grocery store to get like a half an ounce, right? Uh, salt is the cheap big box at the bottom of the shelf that you pay pennies for per ounce, right? Because it's common, because it's ordinary, uh, it's inexpensive, it's plentiful. And we might say this, you, you yourself, as one Christian among billions you don't have to be extraordinary you don't have to stand out you don't have to have all the gifts and talents that god has given to other christians to make an impact on the world you don't have to be a renaissance man or a renaissance woman you don't have to uh, know how to do anything and everything better than everyone else in order to make an impact or to be serviceable or useful to Jesus in this world. You don't have to do any of that. You just have to be common. You just have to be regular. You just have to be salt. Every disciple is salt. That's what you are. And so he isn't telling you to be something you're not. Just be what he's made you to be. It's true about you. You are salt. And only then are you to be salt. But it is an agenda. It is an agenda. And let's think about that agenda in three parts. First, Jesus says, be useful. 
in this world. Now, how does he say that? Well, look, there are at least 11 views on the use of salt known to the ancient world. Uh, and Jesus may be alluding to any of them. If you take an encyclopedia, for instance, on salt in the ancient world, you'll find these uses for salt. Flavor enhancer, taste, that's obvious. A preservative, and that's the most common view, and it's probably the one that's most often preached as the thing Jesus is getting at. And it's understandable. Salt was used as a preservative in a generation and day, especially in the Middle East where you didn't have refrigeration, where you didn't, where you didn't pull ice blocks out of the Great Lakes as my grandparents did and put them in a refrigerator to have cold stuff, right? Where you didn't have that kind of even natural refrigeration. How do you keep meat around? You salt it down or you brine it in salt water and it preserves it. It prevents the spread of bacteria and so it delays the decay of the meat. And so some say, and not inappropriately I think, that the church is identified with that which preserves or delays the corruption of the world. But there are other uses. It was used medicinally. It was used in taxation. It was used in rubbing on newborn babies. You'll even find this in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 4. This reference to rubbing babies with salt, probably not for ritual cleanliness, but for hygiene. You'll find a use of salt uh, associated with judgment and destruction. Because if you wanted to destroy, I mean, if you were the sort of person who wanted to destroy your neighbor's land, keep him from growing crops, whether out of spite or hate or some evil motive, you could salt his land and pretty much permanently destroy it. Salt was used for cursing. Sprinkling salt at someone was a manner of cursing them. In Judges chapter 9, verse 45, you actually have a combination of these last two, where Abimelech defeated the city of Shechem, and he destroyed the city, and he scattered salt over it, probably both as a symbolic gesture of cursing and perhaps also to make the ground infertile. Salt was also used in cattle feed. If you look at the New Testament, there's a passage where Jesus will talk about um, salt that loses its saltiness isn't even fit for the dunghill or the manure pile. Why would he even say that? Well, because a little bit of salt in the manure pile, not a lot, not too much, that would destroy the land, but a little bit is helpful even in feed. It was used in fertilizers. Uh, It was a sign of friendship is another use of salt. Eating meals is a sign of friendship, and usually you have salt on the table with your meal, and so they would say of friendship, let's share salt with one another. And it was used in the sacrifices. If you look at Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, it speaks of the salt of the covenant of your God, and the sacrifices were to include the salt of the covenant of your God. Now look, these are 11 uses in the ancient world, even the, just the, the non-Christian histories recognize these. Which one of these did Jesus have in mind when he said, you are the salt of the earth? Which one? What do you pick if you're the preacher? Well, okay, let's forget the secular histories and let's just go to the Old Testament. 
Right? Because the people he's talking to were Jews who knew their Old Testament. They had ideas about salt that maybe they immediately understood. The challenge of that, of course, is that when you go to your Old Testament, I looked at every Old Testament reference of salt, you'll find many, most even, of the ones referenced in the secular histories, and you'll add to the number with at least two others. For instance, it was used for purifying. Elisha performed a miracle throwing salt into bad water. And it became pure. And it was used for payment. There's a passage that speaks of royal pay. Uh, and, and the expression is, you're on the salt. If you're getting royal pay, you're on the salt of the king. Right? Uh, salt was used as a form of currency in most places. We have an expression that comes from that. Something is, we say, or is not it's worth its weight in salt. Right? It's because it was a common form of currency. So look. It's, what do you do? I think Jesus, in taking such a common element that had so many different uses, Jesus is actually perhaps saying something like this. You are of usefulness. And in a variety, and a multiplicity of ways in this world, you are useful to me to be a blessing to the world. You can have an impact on the world for me. I mean, after all, the metaphor, both of salt and when you get to light, the emphasis is not on um, the substance itself. It's on the usefulness of that substance out in the world. In which case, Jesus may simply just be saying, look, you are useful where God has planted you. So bloom where you're planted. Serve where he's placed you. Seek to be helpful and useful and serviceable. Remember when uh, Jeremiah, to encourage the exiles who had been taken captive out of Israel and into Babylon. Remember how he encouraged them in, in Jeremiah 29. He doesn't tell them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to form resistance groups against the Babylonians. Uh, he doesn't say... Um, uh, I want you to form a militia, uh, gather up arms, and when the time is ripe, we'll go to war against those evil Babylonians. No, no, what does he say? Jeremiah 29, he says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat from their produce, get married and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters away in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Live in the place where God has put you and be useful for the kingdom and for the king and for his glory. I think that's the first thing. Second, not only be useful, be distinctive. Be different. Be other than. Right? The church and the world are distinct communities. On the one hand, he says, there's the earth. And the other hand, he says, there's you, you who are the salt of the earth, right? Be in the world and not of it, the Bible says. Now, when you're in the world and you're not of it, the world isn't going to like that. And in our day, that's oftentimes considered the big sin in this world. Uh, to not go along. Um, to, to, to be different. What our world uh, so often wants to hear even as it says we delight in diversity, 
What it really wants to hear is that in your diversity, you agree with everybody about everything else, and you agree that everything is fine, that there's nothing wrong, nothing to see here. We don't really have a personal uh, problems that we need to deal with before the Lord. We may have societal issues that we need to clear up because we're smart and wise and good and we have proper intentions. The world doesn't want Christians to say things like, Jesus is God, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is important. The world is not going to applaud you because you think God's truth matters or because you think that living the way that God calls us to live matters. Right? The world isn't going to like it when you're distinctive from the world. But we are to be distinct from the world. And yet in being distinctive from the world, we're not supposed to hate the world. The point isn't despise the world, right? Be different from the world for the benefit of the world. As my old pastor put it, to say it provocatively, hate the world without hating the world. Right? Hate sin and love sinners. Hate the systems of the world that are against God. The whole system of rebellion, but love your enemies, as Jesus said. Right? So, so say no to the world so that you can say yes to the world. Say no to the ways of the world because you want the world to enjoy the blessings, to even taste the blessings of God. So our posture towards the world then ought to be to seek to be useful, but also to be different, because Jesus has made us both. Our posture should be similar to that of Jesus himself, who came into the world, what? Not that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. His purpose in coming and becoming flesh and dying on that cross is for the blessing of people, even his enemies. That's our basic posture. It ought to be. So be useful, be different. Third, what? Don't be foolish. Now where do I get that? Give me a second and I'll get you there. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Those with a background in chemistry, which I do not have, but I know that NACL... At least, I hope I'm not wrong about that. In the cockles of my brain somewhere, NaCl is sodium chloride, which is salt, which is considered one of the most stable compounds there is on our planet. Uh, Scientists would tell you it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride remains sodium chloride. It doesn't change. We, We have salt deposits that have lasted thousands of years. Your salt on your table, aside from getting wet and caked, remains salt. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, he isn't giving us a technical chemistry statement about salt. But he's saying something that the people in his generation who heard him would have immediately understood. Why? Because whereas we get our salt from Morton's, right? And it's like 99% pure salt. They didn't have that. They got their salt in that region, in the Palestinian areas, from the Dead Sea. And they did it by, in, uh, the, by getting it from salt marshes or by digging it out of places where it had dried up. But in doing so, the salt had dried up in compound with or in combination with another salt-like substance called gypsum. It was a white kind of powdery stuff. It certainly wasn't salt. And you would have 
so often salt mixed with gypsum. And salt then could leach out of that mixture. And the only thing left behind was the gypsum. And the gypsum then was unsalty. And so what do you do with that? You throw it out on the street to have it get walked on. Nobody wants to eat the gypsum. So the salt of that world could lose its saltiness in that way. And so it could become tasteless, which is how most of our translations put it. If the salt becomes tasteless or if it loses its savor or if it loses its saltiness, these are some of our translations. But the word Jesus actually uses is foolish. Foolish. It's the word used in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, for though they knew God, they didn't honor God, but they became foolish, darkened in their hearts. What's he talking about? How does salt become foolish? Well, he's talking about people become foolish, becoming foolish. And of course, our translators are proper to, to help us see that what he's getting at is the salt has become what it's not supposed to become. Right? And that word foolish here, opposite of wise, of course, also has moral implications in the Bible. Uh, uh, foolishness isn't just like you're dumb. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moral corruption associated uh, that leads you into doing dumb things, right? And so again, the reason we translate it as tasteless or useless is because it's become foolish and therefore useless. It's no longer doing what it's supposed to do. And so he says, it has lost its saltiness, and what remains has power for nothing. It's no longer good for anything, he said. It has, it has power for nothing. It has ability to do nothing, he says, except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So let me ask you, what does a life characterized as unsalty look like? If we want to get at, well, what would a salty life look at? Well, what would it look like to be an unsalty person? Well, what does that foolishness he speaks of that leads to uselessness mean in the context of the Beatitudes? Of what he's just said about what his people were to be like, the way that he makes them. In other words, foolishness here, I think, looks like the opposite of the Beatitudes. It looks like Christians not maturing but declining, not bearing fruit but being fruitless, or hypocritical Christians or Christians in name only not having any of it. And that's hard to discern sometimes in our own hearts. Which one are we? Are we genuine and immature or are we fake? Let me give you some examples. Salt that's useful and salt that's unuseful. Instead of being poor in spirit, what if we're self-reliant? But if we act like we've got it all together and we have everything we need, how will anybody know from us that salvation is a gift we don't deserve? Right? That the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are spiritual beggars, not the self-sufficient. Or... Instead of mourning our sin, what if we're just self-satisfied? What if we don't grieve our own evil? How will anybody know that there's comfort in being forgiven? That they can have that comfort too. 
If we're not grieving our own sin and experiencing that comfort and believing the promise of forgiveness and that comfort and the hope of heaven where we'll be free of sin forever, why would anybody else ever hear that from us? Or instead of being meek, what if we're self-assertive? Throwing our weight around, trying to grab whatever we can, how will anybody know that we actually believe the Lord secures our eternal inheritance and there is nobody who can take it away from us no matter what they do to us. But if we're not meek, how will they know? Or if instead of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we're self-righteous. What if we're preening like a peacock about how well we're doing spiritually, standing on our own two feet, before the Lord. How would anybody know that they could find how would how would anybody who isn't doing well come to know that they could find rest in Jesus who satisfies us with a righteousness that's not our own but that's his own gift for us. They won't if we're self-righteous. Or instead of being merciful to the needy or the hurtful, what if we're self-centered, right? Keeping to ourselves or nursing our grievances against others, then how would anybody know our Savior gives and forgives generously and freely? That isn't a part of who we are. Or instead of being pure in heart, what if we're self-deceived and hypocritical, play-acting and pretending, saying things like, or in our heart of hearts, we don't really need Jesus because we're already clean. We don't need to be cleaned up by him. How then would anybody hear us commend Jesus as our substitute in death for our sins so that he gets what we deserve, we don't get what we deserve. And Jesus brings us safely to God so that we can see God and know God and enjoy God and walk with God sincerely. How can we do that if we're self-deceived and hypocritical or or instead of peacemaking, what if we're self-protective? Look at our, what if our posture is, it's us against them, right? Instead of us for them. How would anybody know that God makes peace with us through the blood of the cross? That he's for us and not against us through Jesus. Or instead of suffering insults for Christ and his righteousness sake what if we're just self-interested right pursuing our own agenda building our own kingdom and avoiding ever being offending uh, ever offending anybody so that nobody will be offended by Jesus how would anybody then know that there is something eternally valuable to live for even suffer and die for Beyond our own little petty agendas. Do you see at least a bit how being foolish that way makes us useless if our lives are unchanged by the grace of God? If we aren't any different in the kingdom of Christ than we are in the kingdoms of this world. There's a well-known pastor who tells the story of his youth when he was put in jail for stealing some merchandise at a department store, his dad was a pastor too, and he was out playing golf with some leaders in the church, and he got a phone call, and, uh, and he thought it was a joke. He, he, he just couldn't imagine that his son was in jail, and so he actually went to the jail with 
the leaders of his church, and there was a lot of embarrassment at that point because the son was guilty as charged. The boy speaks of the impression it made on him, especially the impression that the other men who came with his dad made on him, and others who later said to him things like, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who your father is? Don't you know your true identity? Thankfully, upon reflection on that, he says of himself that even in jail, he knew who his father was. He knew that his father loved him. He knew that he would remain a son in his father's house. And so it is for Christians. We belong to one who is not of this world. He isn't letting go of us. But if we're running away from him, we're of no use to the king and his kingdom in this world. He's made us the salt of the earth. He's placed us here to be the salt of the earth. So remember this, says Alexander McLaren, you are the salt of the earth. And if you do not salt the earth, the world will rot you. And so let me ask you, are you growing Are you maturing in usefulness? That's not a function of age. It's a function of taking on responsibility to walk with Jesus. This is your calling. This is your agenda. This is your responsibility. You have to do this work in the world. Nobody but the disciples of Jesus are the salt of the earth. So nobody but the disciples of Jesus can be the salt of the earth. Don't throw up your hands and say, but what can I do? I'm just six or 10 or 12, or I'm just little and insignificant. Nobody knows me or cares about me. Don't throw up your hands and say that. Listen, we all make a real difference where we are. Most of the famous people in the world, you know this, right? They're famous because of their evil. I mean, if I asked you to name 10 famous people, Most of that list would be the Hitlers of the world and the Stalins of the world. And on your daily newspaper and news feed, who is it that gets their 10 minutes of fame? It's those who do wicked things, right? You don't need to be famous. Don't aspire to be famous. You don't need to be widely known. You don't need to be extraordinary. Jesus has already said, you are salt. You're important. You're valuable. In Christ, you are different. In Christ, you are useful. So don't be foolish. Be who you are. You have a circle. You have a circle. A spouse, children, parents, siblings, extended family, co-workers, co-teammates, people in the professional world, fellow church members. Take up your responsibility To serve one another in love. Be salty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are not what we ought to be as the people of God. And you know all the ways that's true of us. Thank you that we belong to you not by our merits, but by your love and by your grace and by the work of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I thank you that you make us what we're not. You make us who we are. And thank you that you call us to 
um, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. Help us do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's